Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Very excited today. We have actor Michelle Williams going to be talking with us about her new film, Showing Up, and a lot of other stuff. But first, there's this. Well, first, let me say I'm, I'm taken aback at the idea of indicting a former president of the United States um, at, a, at a time when there's a crime wave in New York City that the fact that the Manhattan DA thinks uh, that uh, indicting President Trump is his top priority, I think, is just tells you everything you need to know about the radical left in this country. It just feels like a politically charged prosecution here. Uh, and I, for my part, uh, I just feel like it's just not what the American people want to see. That is Mike Pence. He was talking to ABC over the weekend, and you can hear him struggling. He's He's just struggling to find a way to sound more pathetically cowardly. And I think he, he achieved his goal. There's just so much wrong with that, with that little soundbite. First of all, that little quote there tells you everything you need to know about Mike Pence, uh, that he is just completely spineless. This is a guy who uh, his former boss, Trump, literally called for him to be hung outside the Capitol a little more than two years ago on January 6th at the insurrection. This is a guy who admitted that not only was his life in danger, but the lives of his family members were threatened and in danger as well. Um, I don't know where, what to make of Mike Pence, because he goes, he's all over the place. You know, he talks about how Trump had no right to do anything he did on January 6th, that it was, you know, irresponsible and reckless to call for the, the election to be overturned, and he didn't have the power to do it, and Trump was you know, out of bounds and blah, blah, blah. My life was in danger. My family's life was in danger, blah, 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 blah. blah. And then he sits there this weekend and basically gives Trump a blowjob on ABC. Well, that was so 2021, Andy. <laughs> I mean, let's get with the times here. He desperately wants the Trump base, and there's no discussion of Trump's behavior. It goes straight to outrage. We're outraged about what? I mean, nothing about what Trump actually did. It's, I mean, and then, you know, saying that, you know, that the, the, the new talking point, of course, is that, you know, it's Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg's, you know, top priority. I did, I don't know, maybe I just wasn't clued in, but like, did Alvin Bragg send Donald, send Mike Pence a list of his top prosecutorial <laughs> priorities? I don't recall that being released to the public, at least. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they have an inside track. Yeah. I think we would have them. seen that if it was released. I think so, too. Because anyway, like, number one right there would have been like... The, the Trump misdemeanor investigation. And what, what does Mike Pence think should be the top priority? I don't know. I mean, it's hard to figure out Mike Pence. You know, he just, he constantly says the American people, the American people. You know what the fucking American people want to see, Mike Pence? They want to see you have a spine. <laughs> they want to see you be a man. He be actually, a man. He actually thinks he could actually run for president and win. That tells you how connected he is with the American people. You know, say what you want about Donald Trump. Go ahead. I'm teeing up people like, what are you, what are you going to say now? Seriously, say what you want about Donald Trump, but he projects strength. He projects that kind of charismatic, strong man. At the same time, he also projects being a chump and a fucking whiny toddler, which is really who he is. But to his base, to many in the Republican Party... He does project strength. He talks big. He talks tough. Forget what's on the inside. He, that's what he projects. Mike Pence projects wimp. 
coward. Like he just, I don't, does he really think this is a winning strategy to sit there and go, yes, you know, the man, the American people want to see the man who tried to hang me. It's just so unjust what's happening to him. I have to say it's so unjust, so terrible. I mean, he thinks he can be president and that's pretty clearly not going to happen. He's polling, you know, in single digits by any measure. Who's going to vote for him? Nobody who supports well, what Trump. What does he stand for? I mean, basically, that's a good question. We know what he bends over for, but yeah. what does he actually stand for? So also on the weekend, Donald Trump put out his, a Truth Social post, which drove everybody crazy. It was all caps. It was early morning. It was like a classic Trump toilet rant, basically saying that, you know, Alvin Bragg, is, his office is leaking about the investigation and that there's going to he's going to be arrested on Tuesday, which is tomorrow. We're recording this on Monday. And he also then called for his supporters, surprise, to mobilize in New York and protest and take the country back. Doesn't that sound eerily familiar to J6? Be there. It's going to be wild. So here he is again, literally, literally inciting violence yet again, despite everything that's happened in the last two years. He just doesn't give a flying fuck. And you know what? Why should he? Because he's still allowed to do this two years later, over two years later. Yeah. And and everyone is extremely concerned for good reason. You have the Christian nationalist out on Twitter talking about that this is during Lent and then Trump is just like Jesus, where they're going to crucify him. He's going to be resurrected. And it is off the charts crazy if you pick up a rock and look what's under the internet. I'll tell you, it's just, this is goddamn awful what they're doing to Orange Jesus. If they do this to Orange Jesus tomorrow, there's going to be some bloodshed. Unfortunately, there may well be. I don't think there's going to be anything tomorrow. First of all, New York City cops are pretty fucking tough, and they know how to deal with this shit, in my opinion. Number two, I don't think anyone wants to go to jail for this fucker anymore. I, I really don't. I mean, I, I think they, they, you know, they had a party on January 6th because they, they thought the big guy is in the White House and he's going to protect them. And then they saw that he stayed in the White House instead of marching to the Capitol with them. And he's a big ass coward, did nothing for them, didn't save them. Almost a thousand of them are being prosecuted. I think seven or eight hundred are already in prison. He's going to be indicted. The Proud Boys are locked up. The Oath Keepers are locked up. You know, maybe, but you know what? I've always said this. All it takes is one one person, one person to do something really bad. Yeah, I I, I agree. There's, uh, I would be shocked, 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 shocked if there wasn't. That's a three new, shocks. That's what I'm saying. If there wasn't a new group of people who were willing to put their their lives on the line for him. Mm. I agree. I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna take the the opposite position. I think they would just sit at home, pop open a can of beer eat their Cheetos, watch him walking into court or the police station or wherever the hell he's going to be. Also this weekend, another ass kisser, Kevin McCarthy. Within like, it seemed seeming like minutes after Trump's erratic, batshit crazy, cr- crazy truth social post, McCarthy starts defending him and then says, we're going to use, I've already directed various committees to look into and investigate whether... The Manhattan DA's office is politicizing things and uh, whether they're using government money to do that, blah, blah, blah. It's like these fuckers just created a committee to investigate the weaponization of the government and the Department of Justice. 
it's just I mean Freud would be like you know what guys you guys are amazing like you took <laughs> you took my projection and you fucking ran with it you just yeah. bravo bravissimo bravissimo on the projection they literally do everything they accuse Democrats of doing it's so true yeah and it's so, so it's like but this is the speaker of the house for God's sake it's over the top, I, but I, I, I'm i waiting for Jim Jordan to roll up his sleeves and get to the bottom <laughs> of this. And those are nice sleeves. We see them all the time. Why? Because he's too fucking lazy and disrespectful to wear a goddamn jacket. Oh, no, he makes a performance of taking it off. Jesus Christ. And one day, like, psychologists are going to, like, have him in a room and just be like, all right, we're not leaving here until we get to the bottom of this no jacket thing. Like, what the fuck is he doing with the no jacket thing? What is he trying to say? He's a man of the people. Jesus. People wear jackets. <laughs> no, Everybody it, wears a jacket. It's a metaphor, rolling up your sleeves to get to the bottom. You know, when he starts yelling, he can't have the jacket on. Oh, God. And so here you have the Speaker of the House suggesting that he's going to allow Congress to intervene in the, the investigative work of a lo local prosecu prosecutorial entity like the Manhattan DA's office. I'm so curious what happened to state rights. And it, what, what happened Federalism to doesn't matter when rights. it's, you know, they just play both ends of that candle. Well, he's queuing this up for Georgia. He'll do the same thing when Georgia exactly. uh, indicts. One has to hope that yeah. these entities like the Manhattan DA's office and New York State Attorney General's office, even though that's a civil case, Georgia, Fulton County, the, the federal investigations being led by Jack Smith into uh, J6 and the Mar-a-Lago stolen documents. I mean, there's, and then, then when you throw in, you know, the E. Jean Carroll rape case, civil case on rape, there's six major investigations and cases and lawsuits. It's like, it's like legal whack-a-mole with this guy. It's a witch hunt. <laughs> that wasn't bad. <laughs> it's a witch hunt. It's a witch hunt. So today, today, uh, Robert, and then they put it in quotation marks, Robert Bob Costello. It's like, oh, oh, Bob is a nickname for Robert? Thanks for telling us. We didn't know that. <laughs> so Robert or Bob, whatever you want to call him, because they're so different. Let's call him Bob, because that just sounds friendlier. Bob Costello, who once was a legal advisor to Michael Cohen and also represented Steve Bannon and currently represents Rudy Giuliani in the Georgia Fulton County case. He's going into the grand jury today, uh, Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg's grand jury, and he's going to present testimony that would contradict what Cohen has already testified to and, and said publicly about the the Stormy Daniels hush money case. And then Michael Cohen is going in to, uh, at the request of the DA's office, to be a rebuttal witness. So there's going to be this like duking out today between Costello and Cohen. What it all means and where it goes is anybody's guess, but it is interesting. We're going to see what he has to say, which, I mean, we're not going to see it, but he's basically going to say Michael's a liar, blah, blah, blah. That's what we can expect. And Michael will rebut. And then it'll be up to the jury to indict probably in the next day or two. Yeah. It is indictment week. It is indictment week. It's According going... to the former president. Well, he's he's supposed to be getting indicted, no, arrested. Yeah. So, which is bullshit already because he's not going to get arrested because he's in F Florida and they're in New York. But he's, he's already, it's like, he, he's going to be arrested tomorrow. But like, is JFK coming back tomorrow too? 
Is he also going to be reinstated as president? How many of these fucking deadlines have to pass before the MAGAs go, wait a second, none of these things have ever happened the way he's said they're going to happen, you know, the way Q has said they're going to happen. Crazy. All right, so it'll be indictment week. Hopefully, uh, maybe everyone on the left will get their dream this week to see this man arrested, fingerprinted, a mugshot. How awesome would that be? This is a big question. Is Bragg going to do what he does with every other white-collar criminal, where he puts him in handcuffs and yeah. does the perp walk down the hallway that we saw Steve Bannon walk? Yep, perp walk. We hope. Look, it's a losing, it's a no-win, just like for Garland. These things are no wins. Like if he does what you just said, the people on the left would be like, yes, we're not treating Trump differently. He gets fingerprinted and mugshotted and, and perp walked and all that. But then he's going to get it from the right. Oh, you're treating him differently because he's a former president. And if he doesn't do that, then the left is going to be upset. So it does, which is why in all these situations, whether it's him or Garland or Jordan, they just got to fucking do what they're supposed to do and follow the letter of the law, uphold the rule of law and just, Prosecute people who should be prosecuted, period. Completely. I I will say that I'm really looking forward to the mugshot because that is going to happen no matter what. And that's going to break the internet. It will fucking bust the internet. The internet is going to crash like we've never seen. You're going to see Elon saying that Twitter crashed for some other reason. We may dedicate a whole episode just to dissecting the mugshot. Oh, it'll be great. We'll get like a, a cosmetic expert in to like look at. The... All right. So that brings us to our, our guest, Michelle Williams. She is one of Hollywood's most respected actors. Her latest film, Showing Up, will be released in theaters April 7th and is her fourth collaboration with writer-director Kelly Reichardt. Most recently, she starred in Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, great film for which she received her fifth Academy Award nomination, as well as a Golden Globe and a Critics' Choice nomination. Her other films include Marvel's Venom and the sequel, Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Also, Manchester by the Sea, My Week with Marilyn, Blue Valentine, Brokeback Mountain, Wendy and Lucy, and many other critically acclaimed award-winning films. She's also won an Emmy for playing Gwen Verdon in FX's Fosse Verdon. And she's also a Tony-nominated actor who made a Broadway debut in Cabaret. Michelle, welcome into the back room. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. You've been we uh, finally get to see each other. Yes, talk to it's, each it's other. It's been a while. Well, you've been you've been like manufacturing children a lot lately. It's true. It's true. We um we've been busy. <laughs> you've you've got three kids now. Did you ever think you'd have three children? I think I might have four. Wow. Well, there there <laughs> we go. There's the there's the uh, the news being made today. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So we, we the other day I was doing some math because it's been a while and I was thinking about how long we've known each other and had to back up a couple of things, but it's been about 13 years and we got to know each other because, as people know, my late wife, Adrienne Shelley, she died in November of 2006 and Heath Ledger, who you were involved with, although not at the time of his death, although you did have a child, who Matilda, who was, I guess, around two at the time of his death. Yeah, too. Yeah, that was like January of 08. So it's like 13, 15 months apart. And uh, the story, it was so, I was just sort of climbing out of my little hole and starting to feel, you know, like I, like life might get back to some so, sort of, mm -hmm. you know, normalcy at some point. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
And then what happened with you, your family, it just sort of hit me in a way, you know, our kids were this similar age. And so I wrote you a letter and uh, yeah. I don't remember a lot of what was like the, the, what was in the letter, but I remember the gist of the letter. But do you I remember do. the letter? Well, I remember the letter. I remember, first of all, I'm so amazed when I hear you say, you know, that they, that it was 14, 15 months apart because you managed to reach out to me, even though you, it was still so fresh. That takes a lot of, I mean, do you remember how long it took me to write you back? Yes, it do. Yeah, I, um, I do. It was a strange moment. Yeah. So, you know, when I, I remember so well when I, when I got your letter, because this is going to sound so strange, but I, this is really going to sound bizarre, but um, I think, I know you understand. And I think anyone listening who's experienced grief in this way will also understand when I got your letter, I wanted to eat it. It promised me that things would get better. It promised me that my daughter would laugh and smile. And, and it felt so precious to me to read those words that I wanted to do something to keep them safe. And I did not eat the letter, but instead I pinned it up in our pantry. I pinned up the letter and the picture. You sent me a picture of your daughter smiling on a beach and it was like sunshine. I pinned it there to remind myself that this man, this stranger had promised that things would get better. And it was like a little like corner of sunshine in very dark days. And it took me a long time to write you back, which I felt so badly about because you had no idea that this letter had arrived and affected me in such a profound way. But it took me a long time to get my bearings. It took me a long time to figure out how to say thank you, exactly which words to use. It was about two years. Yeah. No, it's interesting because I, over the last 17 years now, since Adrian has died, I've become friends with a lot of people. I call them my tragedy buddies. And they are everyone from well-known people to just people, everyday people who get up and go to normal jobs every day and every, everyone in between. And so I often, you know, I, I could sit and watch Dateline and see something that's just tragic and horrifying and I'll reach out to people. Sometimes I get a response, sometimes I don't. So it wasn't like I was looking for a response, you know. It's just, I felt so horrible when Adrian died that I needed to sort of let people know that no matter how dark you think it is, like, those are your darkest days. They do get lighter. And uh, because that sort of made the tragedy bearable on some level, if I could share that that sort of trajectory. Because people had done that for me. I had... There was one guy whose son hung himself when he was 14 years old. And, and, he, and he, he came to me when Adrian died. This was years later mm -hmm. after his, his son did that. And he, and he just laid out like a roadmap of what's going to happen and how I'll feel and blah, blah, blah. And it was all true. And so he understood. But so I, I didn't expect anything because oftentimes I don't. And I don't write things to, to get a response. But I remember going in my mailbox it was two years later, and there was a handwritten letter. I had written you a handwritten letter, and it had an upstate New York address. And I was like, "What is this?" And I, I'm, you know, I'm very political, so like, I'm, 
always a little leery of like people sending me things because <laughs> sometimes they send me things that aren't really cool. And it said photo, you know, inside. And you had sent me back a photo of Matilda smiling and happy and and it was just a it, it was just one of those things that were and I when I look back on the moments in life that truly suck it's moments like that that help to make them suck less so everything that you promised me came true and I just have to say like I admire the reach out so much because that can be really difficult you know when you're in the depths of despair it's it's pretty hard to extend yourself and you did that. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, interestingly, it was it was at a time when I, I did feel like life is going to suck, but it's not going to suck the way I thought it was going to suck like a week after Adrian died. So it, it was like that moment hopefully will come for you as well, where, yeah, this is your new truth and your new reality, but it's not it's not going to be the way it, you feel it is right now. Cause, and that was so important when people said that to me. Like, you know, because in, when you're in the throes of it, you need that kind of uh, ability to sort of see beyond what's right in front of you because what's right in front of you is just awful. But anyway, to make a long story short, I'm glad that somehow this crazy tragedy mess has had brought us together and that we got to know each other and be in each yeah. other's lives because you're, you're a pretty, so cool, am I, and I'm pretty cool person. I'm grateful for any opportunity to like tell you again. You never know, right? Like how 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 profoundly you can affect somebody and that letter and that photo was light in the darkness for two years for me you know i i really clung to what you said i believed what you said and it it got me through so well it, the the practice, world needs more of that, <laughs> practice sure. andy's reach out because you never know <laughs> yeah, um, and it was cool that we goes. you know we wrote handwritten letters who does that anymore i know so you've had a busy, uh, you've been busy. You just came off the Oscars, The Fableman's great movie, fifth Oscar nomination. Uh, I watched I watched two of your movies last week. I watched The Fableman's and I watched uh, uh, Showing the Up. Other, showing, showing Up, up yeah. What we're going to talk about. And they're both so different, yet, uh, I, and I, I say this as a, as a member of the tribe, you played a pretty good Jew. I got to say, that was, uh, was, when you Greatest first set out to do that, ever. was that like, how am I going to play a Jew? I have wanted pretty much my whole conscious life to be Jewish. I lived in between two Jewish families. When we lived in San Diego, I lived in between two Jewish families and um, who had uh, girls my age. So I spent a lot of time with them. And I was so tranced by the as opposed to at my house where religion looked like a Christmas tree, I, this like mystery and wonder and heritage and uh, music and and questioning it, I, I was over at their houses for holidays constantly. So I, it really spoke to me. Um, and so this, <laughs> was a real dream come true. And this may sound like a dumb question, but I, I've been known to throw out a few of those. Did you, ha like, I know that actors, they have dialect coaches, they have this coach, that coach. Like, did you have like a Jew coach? I did not. No, I mean, the, the film was written by Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner. So 
Um, they were your two coaches. Yes, I had, had a couple of leading experts in the field. Yeah. And your husband is um, Jewish, right? My husband is Jewish, oh, yeah. So, so you so had he, a lot of Jews around you telling you how to be a Jew. Your little boys are <laughs> half Jewish. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so it's, and it is actually something that we're, it's the way I want to raise my kids. Um, I really love having something that's like a belief system that can be foundational, unifying, um, mark time in special ways. Uh, so it's something that we're going to raise our our little guys with. Mm-hmm. Speaking of little little people, I, I did a little homework on you. That's part of the job. I have to do some homework. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I found out a few things about your childhood that I didn't know about. Like you were emancipated at 15. I was. You went out crazy. to L.A. by yourself. How crazy is that? You had your own place when you were like 16, 15, 16 years old. I know. I can't believe that that was the same body that I still (laughs) live in, you know? That's an incredible story. Like you had your own apartment in another state, far away from home at 15 15 years old. At 15. I look at my 17 and a half year old daughter now and I think like, absolutely no way. I look at my 19 year old daughter. She'd be living in can you please go to your dorm room? We're paying for it. Yeah, it's a really strange thing. It's it's funny. It, like I said, I can't believe that was me. It feels like it feels like so many lifetimes ago. I don't even recognize the person that that happened to. But, but I guess it did. I have so few. You know, I have like a, a mem- like photographs of memories of it. But then I moved. When I, yeah, I got emancipated when I was 15 and moved to Los Angeles. And then by the time I was 16, I got the TV show Dawson's Creek. So I moved right. out to North Carolina. And I always feel so super grateful that I was transported out of Los Angeles and into like a sleepy southern beach town because I think that it allowed for a, a safer semi-childhood-like experience. Mm-hmm. The crew was really protective of of us it was pre obviously like pre-internet pre-cell phone so we were allowed to kind of bump into walls and make some mistakes without the consequences being too hugely broadcast through the universe Mm -hmm. and so i feel like in some ways that really saved me and having i had a job to go to i had we worked extremely long hours we had lots of dialogue to memorize Things were expected of us. It it you know focused my youth on mm-hmm. on a professional life. It's it's interesting you say that because my friend Hillary Burton has a similar experience when she worked on One Tree Hill. It was also I think maybe filmed in North Carolina Same or something. Place. Yeah. yeah, we were all Wilmingtonians. Yeah. When I ask you a question about the Oscars, there's a lot of people who, you know, I mean, it's great when you get recognized for the work you do, especially by peers. But then there's also a lot of people who feel like, ah, it's not a competition. And how could you pick the best? So many roles are so different and the movies are so different. Where do you land on that? Having been through that machinery for so long? Well, I think, I mean, the two things are connected, right? Like I left home when I was very young and um, I've been acting since I was 12 and I auditioned for two years before I ever got a single job. Like my trajectory was not straightforward and it was not straight up. Mm -hmm. So um, 
it took me a really long time to be able to make the kind of work that I wanted to. It took me a really long time to be able inside of myself to make the work that I wanted to, you know, there's like the desire for the thing. And then there's the ability to do the thing. Mm -hmm. And both of those things took me long, painful years. So to uh, find myself in a place where I've been uh, invited to the Oscars five times, it will never feel to me like anything other than a miracle. And Mm -hmm. I will ultimately be nothing but entirely grateful. Mm -hmm. So that's how I feel. That's like the the baseline of how I feel. And then the thing that I try to retain when I'm inside of that room is these are all people who we love to do the same thing. So we have so much in common already. We have an abiding love for this uh, creative endeavor. So we have the basis for so much friendship. Mm-hmm. And and I do find that I enjoy all of the conversations with the, the other actors that I have. And I don't feel like I don't feel between each other that that sense of competition is present. I think it's, you know, it can like feel like that from the outside, but that's not really what the, how the conversation flows. Mm-hmm. It's much more, yeah, it's warm and sharing and connected. Mm-hmm. And is it true that you, uh, your first agent was an undertaker? Yes. So again, did you, like, know, that that's going, did I, you know that when you first started with him or her? Uh, yeah, I think that was a known fact. That was, that's that an was interesting like side job. Then, yeah. So like I said, <laughs> you know, we, I'm very lucky to be sitting where I am today. I, I I love that. I love that story. And so do you feel in terms of like the whole dues paying thing? Cause you really got, you got, I mean, Adrian was very similar with it, with the, her Hal Hartley films. Um, yes, exactly. and we used to joke about that, but like, I mean, there are actors that struggle for so long, you know, and some, you know, don't get a break, but if they do get a break, it comes after this long struggle. And like you said, you went out to LA at 15, at 16, you were on a hit show that set you off on this amazing career. Um, it's not un- it's not usual that that happens, right? No, it's, you know, the, the, the chances are so slim, which is what I think kind of puts people off from becoming actors because the, it just, it feels like, am I really going to be able to do this thing that I love? Um, but it, for me, it took, you know, cause I started when I was 12, but to do the kind of work, you know, I really wanted to work in independent cinema. I mean, I just, that was my goal for mm-hmm. myself was to make a home in independent cinema. And that took me a long time. You know, that was, you know, I was probably what, like 20, 23 when I did the station agent, 24, when I did Brokeback Mountain. So that's a decade Mm. of not being able to do the kind of work that I wanted to and then finally, finally making some progress and finally like getting those 
roles that I really, really wanted. So you, I, you know, people have said like, if you want to act, you really have to be unable to imagine yourself doing anything else mm -hmm. because the rejection is so annihilating <laughs> and really damaging to your sense of self-worth. Self <laughs> yeah. How do you deal? Do you have like a, a, a strategy, a process for, I mean, not now, of course, but back then to get through that rejection, like, do you just have to like the horse put blinders on and know where the end is supposed to be and just be so determined and resilient and not, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I could take that kind of, you know, rejection unless it came from my family and there was a lot of that going on. <laughs> but outside well, of that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, look, they gave you some practice. <laughs> oh, I got plenty I, of practice. I, you know, I think you do have to have this strange combination of like a, a thick skin, but an, you know, an internal sensitivity, but an ability to kind of wrap it in something more solid. Mm -hmm. uh, I think for me, because I, I, I stopped attending any kind of formal education when I was very young, 15, I left home, I got emancipated. It really narrowed my options. So if I was going to have any, if I was going to have a, a life, a, a career, a home, this was my, this was the only thing that I could do. Mm. So I had to develop an ability to focus on the thing that I loved to do. And like you said, kind of put blinders on because if I let all of that in, what would happen to me? Right. right. I would be left without a, a, a skill set. Right. Well, you have to be, I guess you have to start out with some kind of strength and confidence and, and, you know, a goal that is just, you know, you can't waver from. And it sounds like that's what you had. So speaking of independent film, you have a, a film showing up, coming out April 7th. It's your fourth collaboration with Kelly Reichert. You've worked with her many times. Meeks cut off certain women, Wendy and Lucy. Explain why that, why that collaboration continues, what the secret sauce is, why that's so important and fulfilling to you and her. Yeah, we, we go, so we go, we go, we're 15 years into our <clears throat> working relationship. We've made four movies. She's made other movies, of course, without me in that time span. But we've made four movies in 15 years. Which... Do you ever go like, huh, why am I not in that one? I mean, yeah. Why am I not in all her movies? <laughs> she, uh, it's such a special thing that's happened to us. You know, we, the first movie that we made together, Wendy and Lucy, we were talking about this the other day, was a crew of 13 people. I don't even know... Uh, who's making movies like that anymore? It was it was a, such a special time, super intimate, super bonded because we, you know, the the production isn't spread out. There's no trailers. Nobody's like, you're not. There's no separate environments to wait in while you're getting ready for action and cut. So you are together in the elements there was no trailer. Mm -hmm. So we're, you know, rain or shine, we're kind of all huddled together, carrying our own apple boxes around, mm -hmm. batting it up. And we made this thing, which again, like the, this Wendy and Lucy, Wendy and Lucy to me was the, was the culmination was the like most perfect shining example of the work that I 
dreamed of making and still desire to make. Uh, I It doesn't get to me better than that. And, and then we made this movie that people responded to and her, the understanding of her as, as one of our great living filmmakers keeps expanding. And so to see this happen to this woman, friend, collaborator has given my work such meaning to have been a major contributor to her cinematic body of work, I think is the thing that I will be most proud of. I mean, I say this to, not to be morbid, but like I am, but I say this to her, like it's gonna be the headline of my obit. You know, I I figured in the Kelly Reichardt body of work. And so I'm, yeah, I feel like just kind of amazed that this thing has happened to us, you know, against all odds that these micro budget indie movies that we make have become seen as, you know, important in the, not just the American indie film landscape, but internationally, you know, they, she's like a superhero in France. They give her awards at Cannes and have a day dedicated to her. Yeah. Well, it's, <clears throat> it, it's, it seems like you're really fortunate uh, to be in the position where you can do big budget films, take home a nice paycheck so that you can get to do these kinds of films, which is, I would think, a unique position to be in. And it's an unfortunate, I mean, independent film was, was never a place that, you know, was popular outside of a small nucleus of people. And then certainly the money never flowed in today it's even it's even harder to get a, a a film made i don't i still you know i've been involved in a couple of films i i don't i don't know how people do it today it's just and there it's so important that that there are filmmakers like kelly that that you know or adrian you know i mean adrian made waitress in 18 days and you know year after she died i produced a script she wrote called serious moonlight and we shot it in 15 days like, I mean, you know, yeah, to do well, that today, yes, yeah, you know, exactly. and Meg Ryan I mean, was in that film, Serious Moonlight, and she was like, 15 days? This is never going to happen. Days? And then she, when we wrapped, she was like, my God, we did it. Um, yeah. And so I, I read a quote that you said, Kelly and I fight. That's not something that I do with anybody else that I work with, but we love each other enough to do that. <laughs> We're in a marriage and in a long relationship, you're going to have differences of opinion. I mean, of course, that sounds like kind of like, duh, right? But I, I think people yeah. wouldn't wouldn't think that, right? But you have such a symbiotic, close, intimate relationship that it is like a marriage. Yeah, I think that we know that you know we've we've proven that to each other over fifteen years and four films. Like we're not going anywhere. And um, I will always say yes when she calls me, and she seems to continue to want to call me. So there's a kind of safety of. Um, <clears throat> it's it's unbreakable at this point. We've been through so many different kinds of experiences together and we do, we feel safe enough to fight. We don't fight the entire time. I mean, I, you know, I'm, aside from being a her, one of her collaborators, I'm also her biggest fan. So when she tells me, you know, I always try to figure out how to do what she how to be the thing that she sees in her mind. Mm -hmm. And so like, I, I will do, I will try anything that she wants me to. We're, we've just come to a couple of sticking points where we're, where we are, are on opposite sides, but then we, you know, we come together and um, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of love. But yeah, I, I don't mean I don't. I never really fight with anybody. But <laughs> what is what was it about Lizzie's the, the character of Lizzie that you loved? You know, I think I think what I what I loved thinking about was these things. So the movie is really about how do you how do you just sit down at your table and start making your work, whatever it is that you apply yourself to, how how hard it is to just begin, let alone then create. And these things that happen in our days, are they, that seem like perhaps they take us away from a creative process, are they in fact part of the creative process? Are they happening to us or are we creating them? Mm -hmm. um, and how so much of art making is is life making first it's you know arguing with your friends it's sitting down at the bar it's going on a walk and that maybe it's all a creative process mm -hmm. it's an inch she's such an interesting character because she's so like dark and uh dour and sad and lonely controlled you know so bottled up uh, but yet immensely likable and rootable you know, you can root for her. And I remember Adrian once said to me, like, as a filmmaker, she always, as a writer, she always tries to write characters, even the bad ones that you can root for. Because if, if you don't root for them, then it's just like a one-dimensional character, you know? And <clears throat> so this character that we shouldn't really like Lizzie all that much, but we do, you know? Good. I'm glad you like her. I like her too. <laughs> you know, but I think that you're, you see this person who is the product of her environment, the product of these two parents, one, you know, one for whom she just can't do anything right and doesn't get any approval and is passed over for the brother who, you know, why? <laughs> um, why does the mother, despite the brother's, you know, continuous fucking up? Yeah. You know, the mom just can't, can't acknowledge what Lizzie does while perfectly able to acknowledge what her brother does. Mm -hmm. um, because her brother, the brother needs the mother in a way that Lizzie right. doesn't. In a way that Lizzie doesn't. So the squeaky wheel mm -hmm. gets the grip. So I think, you know, ultimately I kind of think it's about, it's a movie, but also about like parents and children, which is actually very much like the Fablemans and about how, you know, frustrating is it, you know, for, I think in Lizzie's case, like I think her parents feel, you know, especially her mother frustrated that she can't make Lizzie who she wants her to be. And, and that your art is actually a place where you can really go to be free mm -hmm. and that you can make things the way that you want them to be. You know, you can, you can build up your skill set. You can become proficient in something and you can, have a certain amount of control in how it turns out. You have to leave the door open for mystery and accident, which the film also talks about in the way that, you know, when Lizzie puts her sculpture, she's a sculptor, when she puts the sculptures into the kiln, there's a certain amount of, uh, there's an unknown. And when something turns out not quite the way that she wanted it to, she has to sort of reckon with like, do I still, is this thing, does this thing still have value? Do I still like this? Is it beautiful or is it ugly? Or does it walk a line that's, um, challenging and exciting. So I think, I don't know, I think I find that really moving that, you know, art is a place where you can go to work, to work out these ideas, to work against these ideas and to really find some liberation. Mm -hmm. 
did you want to play her as a Jew? That's a joke. <laughs> well, do you think I did play her as a Jew? Well, you know, dark and dour part uh, perhaps reminded me of some elderly no, Jews Hirsch in my is, family. Judd Hirsch. I, Judd Hirsch is my father in this movie and showing up. He was my uncle in the yeah, Fableman. Yeah, I was going to ask you, do you ha is that like a thing now that you have to work with Judd Hirsch from now on? In every yeah, movie? we're looking for our next project, just putting it out there. We're looking for something vaudevillian. He wants to sing and dance. How about Taxi, the movie? Taxi, the movie? Just yeah, saying. There you go. Um, in our remaining moments, I want to ask you a couple of um, uh, questions. Um, you, you know, I, I have a foundation, the Adrian Shelley Foundation, which supports women filmmakers, uh, which obviously is a subject that's very important to both of us. Um, getting back to the Oscars, like, isn't it amazing that they still can't, this year they couldn't find a woman director nominee? It's senseless. After all the hoopla and it's just, it's just, Astounding to me that we in 2023 have, don't have yeah. a nominee. That's a that's a woman. Um, I was so excited to see my friend Sarah Polly mm -hmm. win for screenplay because I thought that movie was just a staggering achievement, and it's you know without sense that she wasn't right. nominated for directing work. Right? How does how does um, that happen? Where you you can write. But look, movie. like we're having the conversation. Like change is slow, and then it goes forwards, and then it goes backwards, yeah. and then it gets scrambled. But we are, you know, this we weren't having this conversation ten years ago. Right. No, I mean, look, we my, my foundation we gave Chloe Zhao a, a grant in 2012 when she was still making short films. So we were thrilled wow. when when she won. But it is it, it is. I guess you're right. It's a it's one of those like it's change is slow, but it, it it change is is there. But it just when it's not fast enough, it's just so infuriating to see a a woman write a script that could be nominated, a a movie that she directed be nominated, but somehow the director herself isn't nominated. Isn't so, nominated. yeah? But how incredible! Like that you gave that you guys gave her a grant back in twenty twelve. I mean, you have been doing. I, it must feel because you have been doing the good work for a long time. So <clears throat> I'm sure it feels, you know, cause you're, you're really applying yourself to it and it's just like, it feels like it's getting nudged and not shoved. So I, 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 I understand and I feel the frustration myself. And by the way, you've but, been very generously supportive and helpful in that foundation. You've been involved I'm with me on that. You. So I, I do appreciate that. Till, till the end. So Let's just, let's keep going. But I'm, you know, I'm excited. I like, I just, I love these kids so much. These like teens that are coming up. I feel like when they're old enough to kind of be in positions of power, I just, I feel like, I, I feel like good things are ahead. Mm -hmm. The last thing I wanted to, it's not necessarily a question, but I, I, I did read a quote. It was many years ago. Um, and you said, I want to be happy. And so now you, you're married. Your husband is a very successful. I mean, I, I didn't know this until I did some homework uh, that he directed Hamilton. He did, yeah. yeah. That's pretty big. Uh, and other stuff. Mm -hmm. And he's a Tony Award winner. Uh, and you have a son who's two years old, Hart. You have a newborn who's a few months old. And, and Matilda is 16. And you seem happy. And that's important to me 
because I, mm-hmm. I've known you when you weren't very happy. And so yeah. it's, it's nice to see you happy. It's so nice to be happy. It's so nice to feel happy. It's so nice to breathe happy. Like it's the air in our house. Mm-hmm. Be, my daughter's off school this week and I'm, um, we were just in her bedroom and playing with the baby and, um, yeah, I'm, I got like struck with the happiness stick and, uh, it was such a long time, you know, when people, when I talk about grief now, I talk to people who are grieving, I think I, that if I, I would like to expand people's the the time frame that people put on it because I think it's it's compounded too when children are involved, right? Because your grief, there's your grief, there's their grief, there's your grief for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say like it wasn't a bad year too. Like it was a bad decade. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a hard decade. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time to uh, turn things around, and it's incremental, right? Like it gets it does get better. Like the waves come less frequently when they hit, they still crash, but mm-hmm. they come less. Frequently. Yeah. No, it's, it's like being in the ocean. Uh, it, it's like, you, you know, you stand up and you're like, Oh, and then boom, it's like, it knocks you on your ass again. And you're like, I didn't see that coming. And then all of a sudden it's the same thing. And then you start to realize like, all right, this is what I got to roll with. You know, I can stand up for a while and things are good. And then it's going to crash mm-hmm. and maybe, and then maybe the, the sea water just evens out after a while, you know? I think like another, uh, an, an upside of it though, is <clears throat> if we have to look for upsides because we want to survive, um, because that's what the people who aren't here anymore we would want for us, is that like grief really hollows you out. And you but in but in that is an ability to contain more joy and i i felt like that so much that i felt like i was being hollowed out to the point where i like it was there wasn't going to be anything left of me and you like the grief just feels so enormous but it has it has enlarged your capacity for feeling and when you, when, when joy comes back into the room, when happiness comes back into the room, you feel those things so much more profoundly than before because you've lived in their absence for so long. So I think, I think it expands the container and the happiness that I can feel now, maybe I wouldn't have been able to experience to this level and to experience gratitude I think like do you feel that too like that the gratitude for what remains and the gratitude for the connections that you find is just so immense yeah no it's very beautiful the way you put all that and uh I'm still trying to find my container the the way I want it uh and it's been you know 17 years um the, the thing I want to end with is another quote. And I'm sure like when I talk to people, they're like, oh my God, what did he dig up this time? Like, but it's, it's, <laughs> Yeah, I know. I'm like, oh, what embarrassing thing did I say when I was younger? I was younger. Like, okay. Yeah. But, but it, it, uh, and it, it might choke me up when I say it because when I read it, it would, it just like 
hit me so hard, but you were talking about um, uh, the loss of Heath and Matilda, and you say, and this is a quote, his family and I watch Matilda as she whispers mm -hmm. to trees, hugs animals, and takes steps two at a time, and we know that he is with us still. I mean, I had to, it was like an hour of composure before I was able to function again after I read that because it spoke to me. It just spoke to me because every day I go through mm -hmm. that same emotion with, a, with Sophie. And I mean, just the other day I was in the car with her and I looked at her and I was like, my God, you are your mother right now. And it's, it's shocking the way she looks, the way she acts, the way she talks. And, but you know, I'm a little weepy right now, but it's a happy weepy because my God, like what if this fucking kid looked just like me and acted just like <laughs> me, right? Like, and we had nothing, we had nothing left of Adrian, right? I am so lucky and Adrian's family is so lucky and we're all so lucky that we have this kid who we know she is still with us because all we got to do is just look at her and listen to her. What a beautiful thing that you said, which really is what it's all about when people leave us and leave behind parts of them. I, I, yeah, I'm so, I'm glad that you found that. I do feel, you know, there's this line in this poem that I remember from that time and my, my favorite poet, this guy Galway Cannell, and he says, only the flesh dies, the spirit lingers without stop. Yeah. And we can see that. Oh, my God. Um, I'm like Robert um, Walters over here. Hey. I know, what is it? Uh, and we get to see that in our girls. Yeah. Well, and the is... things that they, that they possess of their parents that they didn't get to learn by watching them, but were passed on to them. Yeah, it's, and we get to sit back and watch. Yeah. No, it's it's a it's a beautiful thing, uh, Michelle. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, it, this is such a favorite chat of mine. Um, um, it's utterly my pleasure, and let's do it again, and um, also get coffee. <laughs> yes, for, for sure. Um, good luck with the film. It comes out everybody April seventh. It's a truly enjoyable film, and it's uh, just another way to see Michelle do what she does so well. So good luck with it and uh, hope to see you soon. Thanks for having me, Andy. All right. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that's episode 53. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446, email us at backroomandy at gmail.com, or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wynn and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our awesome guest, Michelle Williams. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week. <laughs>